STEMQ New England Northwest brings together expertise in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics from across the region. I'm Dr. James O'Hanlon, and here on the STEMQ podcast, you'll be hearing from leaders in industry, community, government, and universities about the groundbreaking innovations that are happening right here in regional New South Wales. This podcast is recorded on Anaiwan Country at the University of New England in Armadale. Welcome back to another season of Stories of STEMQ. This episode, I'm joined by the Senior Vice President of Product Development at Actinogen Medical, Tamara Miller. Tamara, thanks so much for joining me. A pleasure. Thanks, James. Now, I want to jump straight into what Actinogen Medical is working towards. So it's looking at neurological diseases, so things to do with the brain and the central nervous system. What sort of conditions are we talking about? Yeah, so um, Actinogen Medical, so we like to position ourselves as a neurotherapeutics developer. And so we've got um, a drug uh, that's called Danamem, and it works centrally by um, reducing cortisol levels in the brain. And if you, once you look into it, cortisol levels and chronically elevated cortisol levels are actually implicated in lots of diseases. And so we're focused uh, primarily on those diseases that are centrally uh, affected, so centrally meaning in the brain. Um, And our focus is on Alzheimer's disease, uh, depression, and fragile X syndrome. Um, And so all three of those diseases um, have strong links to chronically elevated cortisol. And so that's where we we started. So cortisol, so this is a brain hormone, right? It's a, actually a systemic hormone, so and it's um, often called a stress hormone. So, um, and it's probably not a surprise to hear that uh, you know if you're in chronic stress or you experience chronic stress, that has huge implications for your health. Um, and the issue is, is that when you have um, elevated cortisol levels in the brain, it's actually toxic to neurons, and so that's where you get into the biology of of how. Um, elevated cortisol is affecting Alzheimer's disease um, and how uh, having high cortisol levels can actually accelerate the development um, of Alzheimer's disease. So is this suggesting that you know, periods of high cortisol levels that would other by, otherwise be normal could then lead to Alzheimer's later on or are we talking about another process shooting these levels of cortisol way higher than they should be for, for some other reason? You, yeah, look, usually it's the chronic um, the chronic nature of the elevation. So if you have periods where you've, you've got, you're under stress or, you know, uh, and it's isolated, that's generally okay. And the body compensates and deals with that fine. It's, it's when it's chronic over a long period of time um, and whether or not that's related to your own biology or whether or not that's related to extrinsic factors, like you have a, you have, you know, a difficult job, you have a difficult home life, um, you know, things like that. Uh, but it, when you look into it, a lot of people have chronically raised cortisol levels right now in our society. And then later down the track, say a person gets one of these conditions, say Alzheimer's, for example, mm-hmm. those cortisol levels continue to be high in the brain? Yes. Yes. Right. They- and paradox, well, not paradoxically, but probably um, as you would expect, people who have Alzheimer's disease and are given a diagnosis are then under more stress. <laughs> mm. of, and so then you continue the cycle and, and that's where we see the acceleration of symptoms of Alzheimer's disease increase um, with, with the higher cortisol levels. So you're working to use this drug 
Xanamine. Mm-hmm. And you said it regulates cortisol. Does it remove cortisol from the system? What's it actually doing? No, so you don't want to remove cortisol from your mm-hmm. system. That's actually a very helpful hormone. Um, one of the best, um, th- one of the things that it does very well is actually modulate our glucose levels. Uh, so we don't want to change that. <laughs> we don't want we don't want to interrupt the you know the natural release of hormone. And so that's where our drug is actually very specific. So we're targeted um, to reduce the cortisol levels in the brain. And so what we do is we inhibit an enzyme that converts inactive cortisone. So cortisone is the precursor to cortisol. It converts cortisone into cortisol. And so we inhibit that enzyme in the brain. Um, and we don't inhibit it 100%. We inhibit it, depending on um, the person, pr- probably 50% of the enzyme sites up to up to 90% of the sites Um, and that's also dose dependent and so that's what some of the research we're doing at the moment is what's the ideal dose Um, and so we are focused only on reducing that excess cortisol levels in the brain to prevent that that toxic buildup of cortisol and it's something that i'm assuming you'd be using should you develop one of these conditions as opposed to being a, a preventative you know stop yourself from getting too stressed kind of you know medication yeah, well, well, interestingly, because the way that, you know, research works in clinical trials, you've got to go through lots of different phases of, of trials. Um, and so we did what's called phase one studies in healthy volunteers. So people that didn't have Alzheimer's disease, didn't have depression, no disease state really. And we actually, with Xanamem, we showed that we improved cognition in healthy volunteers. So cognition, you know, your ability to think clearly, to remember to remember things, to um, to have that sort of clarity of mind, if you like. That's one of the first things that um, one of the first symptoms that people um, tend to tend to experience with Alzheimer's disease. We improved that in people that didn't even have a deficit really to start with, and so they're you know drugs, what you call cognition enhancers. Um, and so we think that we you know that we may have some utility there as well. Um, and so it could be it could be that in the future, you know, our drug is prescribed as a prophylactic, as a preventative. Um, and like you said, if, you know, if you if you're going through a stressful situation and you're aware of it, you take our drug just to reduce those levels to stop, you know, to stop that chronicity chronicity happening. So, so this drug Xanamen is it currently the kind of thing you can walk into a chemist and get off the shelf? No. No, no. So, so um, like I mentioned, we're in clinical development. So that means that we have to go through all, all of the regulatory um, trials that need to be done. So there's usually three phases of trials that uh, have to be done before you get registration and marketing approval. Um, and so phase one, phase two, phase three, and we're in phase two at the moment. So um, we've still got probably, I would say, about three years before we get registration uh, with the FDA, with the TGA and, and uh, other jurisdictions around the world. But we've got prom- really promising results so far. So that's good. So you have this company, Actinogen Medical, that is really centred around this one drug and the application of this one drug. Mm-hmm. How does a company like this then start does it start with the development of the drug and then you build the company around it or does the company develop the drug to be used what's what's that process yeah it's a good that's a really good question so 
for us, um, Actinogen acquired Xanamem from the University of Edinburgh. And so that's usually usually like how, how drugs are developed. Most universities have a drug discovery program where, where they're, you know, they're split up in terms of all of the different medical fields, endocrinology, cardiovascular, cancer, oncology is obviously a really big one. Um, the drugs are continually being developed for oncology. Um, and so they have these sort of, you know, little incubators, if you like, of drug discovery. And that's all people do is they, they think of a problem and they think of, well, how do I make this drug? Um, and it's the, so they make the drug quite crudely, you know, in the university. And then they, um, they do lots of preliminary tests, usually, um, in vitro. So just in, in, in the laboratory, they test it and see whether it's got the utility that they want. And then they go out and say, Hey, does anyone want to buy this? This looks like it's going to work. And so Actinogen, um, they did that. Um, they the people that, uh, I wasn't involved back then. It was done. I've been with the company five years and they bought, um, they licensed Xanamem from Edinburgh about eight years ago. So, and so they brought it in and then they started the company with the drug. And so the drug um, acquisition came first and then, and then you develop the company and then you say, okay, what do we need to do to ultimately market this drug? And that's where you come in um, with all of the different phases of trials that you have to set up and then you work out, What's the, who are the key personnel that we need to hire into the company? What can we outsource? You know, what can we contract? Um, and that's, yeah, that's very, that's usually how it happens. All right. So we have the, this sort of foundational research being done at the university level. And I guess their goal is to make something that they can then sell on for a company like Actinogen. Is the business model then you invest early to get this? drug to do all the development and I guess I guess hope and, and plan that it will then be turned into a marketable sellable product in the future yep exactly that's that that's the hope so we're a public company and so we have shareholders that invest in the company and yeah and they also hope that it works <laughs> so obviously for us for any sort of small um small biotech company and and most companies of that are like Actinogen are actually based in the US. There are very few um, biotech companies like us that are uh, headquartered in Australia and founded in Australia. And so obviously you start out and, you know, just say, say your share price is one cent, just say. Um, you know, the hope is obviously that you get good results and you either partner with a bigger company like Pfizer or Merck or Sanofi, you know, the big pharmaceutical companies, or they, they say, hey, we like your drug, we're going to buy it off you. You know, and then the share price goes up to a dollar, right? And so the shareholders win, everybody wins um, because it's a big, it costs a lot of money to develop drugs. It costs a lot of money to go through the clinical trial process. Uh, lots of figures are quoted a billion dollars <laughs> is, is, you know, tends to, to be from, from the very beginning to when you get it marketed. So it's a lot of money and it takes a lot of people, a lot of man hours um, uh, to do that. And long-term thinking, this might not be an answerable question. Would the point then in the future to become a company that yeah, manufactures and distributes the drugs or would that then get acquired by, like you said, one of these larger companies? Mm. Yeah, maybe. It just it, it sort of just depends on, on where things go. Mm. There's, there's two, yeah, there's lots of options. We could retain it and, and you know, build, build Actinogen to be a larger company or 
or we could off, you know, let someone else take over that's already got that infrastructure and um, got all the facilities globally already. Yeah. And you're in the product development side of things, or you're the, the heading the product development side of things. Mm-hmm. Does that mean you're overseeing sort of everything from your know, clinical trials and things up to what the marketing of this drug could look like in the future or are there sort of specific areas you're working on? No, pretty much, yeah, pretty much everything. Um, so when you think of the product development life cycle for a drug, um, it's, it's, it starts off, like we said, in, in acquiring a molecule and then you've got to work out how do you manufacture it because the, you know, at the university they would have made, you know, a couple of grams of the drug and we need to make kilos of the drug. And so that process to scale it up, so I'm responsible for that. Where do we manufacture it? How do we manufacture it? What regulations do we have to abide by? Um, and then and then we work out, all right, where are we going to do our clinical trials? What's the clinical trial going to look like? Um, and you, you need to design what's called a study protocol. You need to have um, lots of different documents involved in that. And before you can... Before you can start on the study protocol in humans, you have to test on animals. So that's what's called preclinical development. So I do that as well. And so you've got to do um, to- what's called toxicology studies. So you want to obviously make sure that the drug doesn't cause cancer, doesn't cause any other sort of um, toxic effects, um, you know, raised liver function test values or things like that. And so you've got to test... Um, in rats, usually rodents is the is the primary animal model, um, but you also have to do some testing in dogs, um, which I can't. I I hate doing it. I hate really do, really don't like it. Um, but yeah, so I I also um, was responsible for all of the preclinical studies that we have to do, um, and then in the same time at the same time, once you do a, a minimum level of a minimum amount of uh, preclinical studies, you can then start in humans. And so I oversee that as well. So all of the clinical studies, all of the regulatory. So when we say regulatory, we mean um, organisations like the FDA uh, and TGA in Australia. Um, So we've got to do all of these massive dossiers to say, here's all of our preclinical data. Here's the clinical studies in humans that we intend to do. Is that okay? You know, do you give us approval? And so we've got, I oversee that as well. And then... um, I also oversee or am involved in a lot of um, intellectual property, so um, IP um, with patent lawyers. So we work with patent lawyers and to file patents globally for our for our product. Um, and so I work, I oversee that as well. And right now we're sort of just starting to get into the commercial thinking about commercialization. So coming up with a proprietary name for our drug, um, coming up with like you said, what does it look like if we do market this ourselves and distribute it and all that sort of thing. So I, I, I cross the spectrum and then I've got people and like that work with me um, that have their own sort of uh, departments. You described yourself before as a small biotech company, but these sound like quite epic <laughs> undertakings. As, as I mean, how big are we talking here? Or is this all completed in lots of collaborative ventures? Yeah, so there's we've got 14 people that are like employees of the company um, and then everything else that we do because it is it does involve hundreds of people is outsourced so we use um, what's called clinical research organizations CROs and so we contract out to them to actually manage 
our trials, be that preclinical or clinical trials. And so they've got staff all around the world, you know, and they go out and they find the doctors or the, the clinical sites that want to take part, etc. And so we contract out to them. We manage we manage the studies, but they do the groundwork. And then we also have um, a key a key list of, I guess, um, important consultants that we use on a regular basis. And there's probably about a dozen of those that were regularly, you know, regularly work with us every month. Um, but they're not employees of the company, they're consultants. And so if you take them on, you know, we're, we're getting up around the 30, 30 people, which is still pretty small. Um, um, but, yeah, we, we get away with it by outsourcing and contracting. Yeah. Now you're overseeing all different aspects of developing these drugs but what have you come into this role with have you come from the chemistry side of things or the therapeutic side of things or the business side of things what's your background yeah so i um i did biomedical science at university so i did a um i did a bachelor's degree uh, in biomedical science and then i did a master's um in biomedical science and I was going to go on to do a PhD and I never got around to it because I moved to the UK. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I've often thought about doing it again, but the work that uh, that I do at the moment is is at that level, you know, and it's sort of like, oh, I just haven't got around to it. So, yeah, so biomedical science really covered, um, it, was a it was an advanced degree, it was a four-year degree as a standard, and so it covered everything um, from chemistry, biology, uh, biochemistry, human physiology, um, and so I got a really good uh, overview of of science and the science that helps me in my job now is chemistry. So I've got to understand the chemical uh, synthesis process of our drug and I've also got to understand the um, the, the human physiology, biochemistry interactions of, of what our drug's doing to the body and what our body's doing to the drug um, because it works both ways. And so it's been you know, I, I can't think of a better degree actually um, <laughs> to, to help. And um, I, I often find it funny when people say, oh, um, you know, I don't use my degree in my job. I use use it all the time. I use my, <laughs> even, even like um, calculus, right? So, <laughs> even, um, you know, doing the pharmacokinetic um, calculations that you have to do to work out um, the exposure of drug in, in your system it actually uses calculus to do that. Uh, so I do that um, on a regular basis. Yeah. I imagine though sort of working your way up through different roles and ranks, you would have had to do a lot of learning in the other side of things. Like just, did you get taught about patent law in your biomedical degree or did that have to come later? <laughs> yeah, no, definitely not. Definitely didn't get taught about patent law. Um, yeah. Most of that just comes, has come from on the job learning. Um, so, you know, just looking, reading through patent filings, which are really like if you want a quick way to, to go to sleep at night, <laughs> that's what you should read. Um, but no, just on the job learning. And I've also, uh, I did a, a diploma of business um, as well, just to, to get an overview of, of more more about accounts, accounting and, and you know, uh, reporting um, obligations that you have as, as a company. So I did that as well. And I also did um, a project management professional certification. And so a large aspect of my role is coordinating other people and organizing um, schedules, project schedules, timelines, um, milestones, things like that. So the project management um, professional certification that I did, which was quite in depth, was amazing for that. Um, and so you, 
I, and I tend to, and I tend to be the type of person, you know, the more that you know, the less that you know. And so I'm very open to, to learning um, from the people that I work with. And I think, I don't think there's been a day that I've not learned something new in the job. And do you need, I guess, a, a specialist field of medicine with the kind of roles you do, you know, say, should you leave this role one day, do you need to then work in another neurology focused field or, or can you jump into other fields of medicine? Yeah, no, I can jump, jump into any, any field. So, I mean, I've been with Actinogen for five years, but prior to that, um, I was working in the, doing the same sort of thing, but yeah, working on oncology drugs, working on, um, you know, uh, antibiotics, working on, uh, blood pressure drugs across the board. So it's it, it's really you you don't need to be specialized at all in a in a specific medical field. It's it's better if you've got a, a broader um, sort of scope. Yeah. yeah. Now Actinogen is based down in Sydney, is that right? Yep, yep that's right. But you're not based in Sydney. No, not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so you're working from home in Moree. Yep. How how did that come about? Yeah, so a lot of it was to do with um, COVID, um, as a lot of people can appreciate. Um, people were working from home anyway. Uh, you know, we were forced to. So, and then I wanted to. I wanted my kids. I've got two boys. Um, I wanted my children to be able to spend more time with my mum, their with their grandma. And I, and I just wanted to slow down a little bit. So as you can imagine, the, the job's quite full on. And um, I thought, oh, it would just be nice. It's not a permanent move, but it's just for a few years. be nice to be able to do that. So I, I put the prospect to my boss, who's the CEO of our company, um, and he said, yeah, absolutely, go for it, do it. And so I go down to, um, to Sydney for one week every month uh, and that's really good because it, whilst it's good to have Zoom calls, you know, you do need to interact with people. Um, and then otherwise I've, I have calls, you know, probably have four or five calls every day with the team and it just works really well. It's fantastic. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Everyone sort of had to get used to, to working from home with COVID and it sort of stretched out a bit, but yeah, working in a, a different city is a, is a whole other ball game. So it's good that yeah, the company understood that it was doable i imagine it comes with some some hurdles there right yeah i think i think the hurdles the positives very much outweigh the negatives um the 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 thing is the interaction with people so yeah i do i do miss that i don't miss catching the train to work i used to have to catch the train to work catch the train home um and I think it just make you work. It, you, you just make it work. I mean, um, I'm at, thankful to be at the level where I just do my job, you know. Mm. I need to be careful. There are more junior people that I think you need to be a little bit careful about letting work from home all the time, especially if they've never had the opportunity to interact with people in an office environment because um, it does take you've got to be self-disciplined. You know, you've got to come and do your work. You can't just go and watch TV and <laughs> and do that. But um, but I love it at the moment. It's just working really well. Mm. Do you think it will continue for a little while yet? Yep. Yeah. For the foreseeable future, for sure. Great. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I imagine that you, uh, you mentioned before a big part of moving out was 
slowing down a bit. Is that just talking about the uh, the the pace of life in the city as opposed to a place like Mori or the actual pace of, of the work that tends to happen in those areas? Yeah, so the work hasn't changed, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but yeah, just the pace, the pace of Sydney. So the having to catch the train, the traffic, you know, the the house prices. You know, so we had a we had a house in Sydney, and so we were lucky. But it's just crazy. It's just very expensive, um, and you know, the the prices out here are, are obviously a lot um, a lot less. Yeah, just the general, just the general feel. When I left Maury, because I left Maury, I grew up here and left to go to university. I said oh, I'm never, never ever going to live there again. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny how you change and you you learn to appreciate. Actually, you know, because a lot of people in the country are, are content, right? And you don't see that a lot with people in the city. There's not that contentedness that you get from the people in the country because life is is slower. You know, mm. it is slower. There's less. There is less pressure. There's 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 one set of traffic lights in Mori. You know, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it's really nice. And it's I think it's nice for the kids to see that too. That that there are other ways to live. You know, you don't have to be go 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 all the time, um, like people are in the city. Yeah. I mean, having done the same thing, having you know, worked in Sydney. I'd- realized that I was sort of always surrounded by people that were in my field even outside of work you stay within your little bubble and then when you move to a small town the people that you interact with aren't all in your little bubble and you 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 see a lot more different perspectives like you said before you're working across different fields and in different companies actually helps do you think then there's also that sort of flow on benefit of having uh, uh, your your personal life that you have in Maury can actually benefit how you conduct yourself at work? Yeah, ab- absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, uh, you, you hit the nail on the head. I think it's been eye-opening to interact with different people. You, yeah, you just, you do surround yourself with, with people who are like-minded. And, and out here in the country, um, you do get different perspectives, and it's not, and it, the, you might not agree with the perspectives that other people have, but I think that that's important, and that's what's important in any job that you have as well to see things from all angles. You know, some people aren't very good at that, um, and I think the people that are good at it are more successful. You know, that you're not rigid, um, you're not inflexible. You can have a discussion with someone on an opinion that differs to yours, you know, um, and I think that's good. So definitely, that's a big help. I imagine there's not a whole lot of other biotech entrepreneurs hanging around Maury for you to chat with. Not really, no. <laughs> <laughs> no what, but there's a lot, of, a lot of great people here. So you put us in context. What's what's in Maury? What's the main field there? Farming. So. Yep. Yeah, so cotton and wheat, uh, you know, that's the main, um, the main th- uh, things that are farmed. But a lot of people, you know, there's other uh, people farm uh, animals around here, bulls. You know, um, there's also um, other other grains like sorghum and fava beans and barley, um, but very very big agricultural 
um, community. That's where most of the money comes from in terms of the town. That's where most people are employed and all of the other sort of smaller businesses are here just to support the community, um, but farming. And being a, I guess, a high-ranking STEM professional yourself, is there a way that you can share what you do with your community? Yeah, I'd I'd love to. So um, I have um, talked at um, the high school previously um, and there was uh, actually my son took part in the um, Illuminate Challenge from UNE. Um, That wasn't necessarily STEM, but um, we got talking to um, some some teachers there and some of the people that came across from UNE about going into the primary school um, about that. But there's not there's not too much. It's I've sort of I've got to be the one to go out and say, hey, can I do anything? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which um, which is which is fine. But there's not much um, not much initiation that I can see um, to promote STEM, unfortunately. And do you think that's lacking in a small town like Maury? Definitely. Definitely, because I even thinking back to when I was here at school, I was fortunate to have really great teachers. Um, the science teachers were really great, and they that made me fall in love with science. But if I hadn't pursued that or or taken it on myself to to find out more, it really wasn't forthcoming. Um, and I and that, it's a shame because um, you know science is is wonderful, I think, and um, it should be promoted more. Mm-hmm. So looking forward now, going back to, you mentioned before, actinogen was in, I think you said phase two mm-hmm. of the trials, so heading into phase three. Is that looking at sort of clinical trials with people now or is that not it's already yeah. being done? Yeah, so the when you get into the um, using phase, that's all in humans. So phase one, mm-hmm. um, is the first lot of studies you do is usually in healthy volunteers. So you're just testing, generally testing the tolerability of your drug, right? It definitely doesn't cause side effects. It doesn't harm people, et cetera, et cetera. And then phase two, you start looking at patients that actually have the disease that you want to treat. So you start looking at patients with Alzheimer's disease, with depression, et cetera. And so that's where we're, that's where we are at the moment. And then phase three is basically the same it's just larger that's where you do your larger studies and you say oh look we got these great results in alzheimer's disease patients in phase two in a 200 patient study and then in, we're going to repeat it now to make sure that the results actually are the right results and we're going to do a thousand patients in our phase three study so that's that's the next step so obviously we're a while off people being able to access these drugs through their doctors or whatever but if there's any chance people are listening that are interested in the trials themselves. Is there a way they can keep up to speed with what's happening? Yeah, so you can go to our website, actinogen.com.au. And so at the moment, we're just setting up um, our depression study, which we call Xanacid, and that's um, short for Xanamem in treating cognition um, in depressive disorders. Um, We're setting up a study in Australia, so Australia only, and we've got uh, 14 sites around um, Australia and we'll have those listed um, on our website. And so you can go in there and you can, if someone, for example, has a depressive disorder, um, they can go and contact the sites. Don't contact us because we don't have any direct contact with patients, Um, only the the trial sites do. Um, So they can contact the trial sites and, yeah, 
ask to sort of come in and, and see if they're eligible for the study. So these trial sites, uh, as in like are a location you would need to be near to, to take part in? Yes. Yeah. And, and a lot of the trial sites are in the major cities because that's just where the population is. We, we do have a site in Newcastle, though, which is, which is pretty good. Um, and a couple of sites, um, Sunshine Coast, um, Sippy Downs is one of them. So that's sort of a little bit outside of a major city. We're trying hard to, to find more regional sites. But um, a lot of, um, you know, for example, if you think about a GP clinic right in the country, um, they just don't have the infrastructure or the staff to be able to do it. And so it's a bit of a catch-22 trying to do that. Well, we'll keep an eye out for this product hitting the shelves in the near future. But the very important question to end on about that stage of things, you mentioned you had to develop the possible commercial names for the drugs, which yeah. I've always find interesting, all the weird, bizarre, bizarre little <laughs> tablet names. Yeah. Is that a, is there a formula to naming a drug or is that a marketing question? Are there rules to it? How, do, how does that happen? <laughs> there are rules to it. So okay. yeah, it's, it's actually really complicated and it's a huge application. So it's called a USAN name. So that's where, you, that's where you've got to register um, the proprietary name. And so depending on um, what class of drug you are, and so we're quite unique, <laughs> we don't really fit into any class of drug, but the people at USAN help you to determine that, you've got to follow a naming convention. So that's where you get into, um, for example, one of the best um, examples is blood pressure medication. They always end in STAT, right? So they're called statins. Um, and so we're probably going to have some sort of name like that, that you know, that w- where you've got to have some suffix there that um, is determined by USAN. So, and usually it's either um, the name is unpronounceable. <laughs> <laughs> you think of all of those proprietary names, um, or really simple, mm. uh, unpronounceable, really simple, and nothing in between. <laughs> and are these regulations essentially like a, a, a guard against people calling their drugs Happy Wonder Joy Juice exactly. type of thing yet? Yeah, that's what the intent is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, good luck coming up with a name. <laughs> it sounds yeah. fun. Yeah, thanks. It's a bit of a process, yeah. And then you've got to, yeah, it takes them 12 months to actually give you, say, yes, this, you can have this name. Wow. Well, <laughs> all right. No we, no sneak peeks we can get just yet? No. We, don't. <laughs> no, we haven't got it yet. <laughs> all right. Well, I'll, whatever it is, we'll keep an eye out for it. Samara, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks so much, James. Thanks for joining me here on the STEMQ podcast. Stay tuned to hear more stories as we work to empower STEM innovation through the STEMQ precinct.